Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Ruby Rogues Podcast. This week on our panel, we have Luke Stutters. Hello. Darren Bramer. Hello, hello. Valentino Stoll. Hey there. I'm Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and this week we have a special guest, and that is Cameron Dutro. Cameron, do you want to remind people who you are? It's been 250-odd episodes. Yeah, absolutely. I'm Cameron Dutro. I work for GitHub, which is just only about a month. I've been only in that job for about a month. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, the author of a couple of gems and things, and am currently working on the view component library and view components at, at GitHub. And I think what we're going to chat about today is like really uh, relevant to that. So yeah, that's me. Awesome. I remember working my tail off to become a senior developer. I read every book I could get my hands on. I went to any conference I could and watched the videos about the things that I thought I needed to learn. And eventually I got that senior developer job. And then I realized that the rest of my career looked just like where I was now. I mean, where was the rush I got from learning? What was I supposed to do to keep growing? And then I found it. I got the chance to mentor some developers. I started a podcast and helped many more developers. I did screencasts and helped even more developers. I kind of became a dev hero. And now I want to help you become one too. And if you're looking forward to something more than doing the same thing at a different job three years from now, then join the Dev Heroes Accelerator. I'll walk you through the process of building and growing a following and finding people that you can uniquely help as you build the next stage of your career. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. Yeah, you've definitely done some interesting stuff over the years with Ruby, and it's, it's always great to have you back. I'm just going to dive right in and ask you about rocks because JSX, I have this love-hate relationship with, and you kind of pitched it as the JSX for Ruby, which means I probably have a love-hate relationship with it. So what, well, what prompted I, this? Yeah, you know, I certainly hope it's more love than hate, but hey, you know what? I, Depends on the day. Yeah, there you go. I'll, I'll take both. It actually might be better to, before I talk about Rux, to step back and talk about what view component is, because view, Rux is basically mm. built on top of view component. So I like I think, view component. So yeah, that's a good place to start. Okay. Lots of love there. That, that's good to hear. Yeah. So, so view component is a project from GitHub that, and I, I can just I'm have the website up here. I think the website is, is a, has a really good job of explaining it. So view component is a framework and it's used for creating these these small components that you build in Ruby and that what you're doing with those, just like everything in the view layer, is building markup. So we all sort of know how views work in Rails, where you've got a view template, seen the views directory scoped usually under the name of the controller, and there's like a, you know, maybe index.html.erb. And inside that file, you have ERB code, and that ERB code is just generating HTML, which then gets sent to the browser and then rendered, right? The problem that view the views have that I think the view component solves really nicely is that there's a number of different problems. One is that the data flow aspect of the of, of regular views in Rails is a little bit rough because the only way that you can really access data from your well, there's 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 two ways you can access data from your controller. The view is, by the way, rendered in the context of the controller, so you can access instance variables inside the controller. You can also pass locals into your templates. You can render a partial, for example, and pass locals, which show up as local variables inside the template, and that's fine. But what that also means is that when you render a partial, you also get access to the same instance variables that you got in like the parent template, and so you've got this really sort of awkward data flow slash sharing of objects happening there. And you know, you might have a partial that's rendered way deep inside your 
stack there in your view, and it has access to an instance variable and maybe even uses that instance variable to do something. And then you're like, I want to go reuse this partial in some other part, some totally unrelated part of my stack. Maybe it's a button or something. So generic enough to be rendered somewhere else. And it also has access, or it, and that, at that point, because it's rendered in a different controller, doesn't have access to the same instance variables and blows up. So you've got this like very sort of weird coupling between the instance variables inside your controller and the template. And sure, you can pass locals, but you know that's also kind of awkward because you know the locals have to be passed it. Let's say that you want to get them to a component, to a to a template, a partial that's five levels deep. You know you want to pass them from the parent. You have to pass them. Every, in every step down the way. And that's also pretty, pretty awkward, right? View components are also like 10 times faster than using partials. That's another, so there's also a performance implication there. So you can render stuff, view components faster. And then the, one of the other big component or parts of this is testability. So with view components, testing is a lot more straightforward. And it might also help to sort of describe that a component is just two things. It's a Ruby file, just a class that inherits from view component base, and it's a template that's rendered in the context of only that view component. So it's not rendered inside your controller, it's just rendered inside the component. So you make a new instance of that component, and when you call, when you pass it into the render function, it will render that template that's on disk in the components directory in the context of that template, or sorry, in the context of that component, and then it has access to those instance variables. But again, those are passed in from the controller, so it's a separation from of your view from the controller in a much more mm -hmm. obvious and sort of strict way. Okay, so that's a big so, whirlwind there. I'm going to I'm going to drop some other stuff your way though cuz you can also set up CSS files or SCSS files for your components. That's true. That's actually something that the team has been looking at kind of a lot like making sure that the CSS is like scoped to Yeah, I haven't bothered with that, but <laughs> yeah. You, yeah, I can you set can. a parent class in the SCSS file and then drop everything inside it and scope it that way and I've done that. Right, for sure, for sure. And there was, a, was some work that's going into like, can we potentially like generate the class name so that it's unique and doesn't collide with the other class names? And that's that's sort of a lot of, you know, a lot of experimentation going on there. I don't know if we have something totally ready, but yes, the idea right. being that eventually you can scope CSS, maybe JavaScript to some degree, who knows? There's lots of, lots of different experimentation going on about that. Yeah. And then the other brain damage that I've added to that is that I've lately been creating stimulus controllers that attach to some of my components. Oh, yeah. So it that's all really kind cool. of scopes around real nice. So yeah, anyway. that's super cool. But yeah, that, right. that's that's how I've been using them. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So so view components are like a really cool building block, I would say, like especially when you get into making a larger application or you have a design system at GitHub, our design system is called Primer. And Primer is both a set of React... Well, it's, first of all, it's CSS. It's also a set of React components and a set of view components now. So it's you can use them in, in, in JavaScript land or you can use them in, in Ruby land. So components nice. are nice because of all the things I just mentioned, but they're also just nice in terms of like being able to think about your system in, in, in reusable terms, which I think is something the view layer has lacked for a long time. You know, sure, there's partials, but I just mentioned some of the problems with partials. View components are just Ruby classes with templates. So they're, they're similar to controllers, but they're, they're isolated. They're only for that one specific thing. Like I want to render a button. So I pass in the buttons text, drop downs, you know, layouts, all that kind of thing can be turned into components. Mm -hmm. So, so you end up having a really nice separation, but also like you have shareable, shareable components that you can then use in other parts of your site or even turn into a gem and use in other projects, mm -hmm. uh, which is exactly what primer is. Primer is a whole design system with buttons and drop downs and all kinds of things that you can use in, in a project. I haven't, I haven't thought about putting view components into a gem, but I like the idea. Yeah, totally. Like a sort of almost like a like a, a drop in, like you know how Bootstrap mm -hmm. sort of turned 
you know, design into something that anybody could access. Like I now right. have access to this really good looking button that the bootstrap people made and I can just stick the CSS classes on my div and I've got this cool button. Think about that, but in, in even easier terms where like you simply say render button component dot new and then pass in a title and that will render that, you know, primer button or, or whatever else. Yeah, you, you see can that a lot do the with, same thing in your own site. Yeah, you see that a lot with like React or Angular or something, right? Where it's they have an Angular material or a Angular bootstrap or a React bootstrap, right? And so you pull that in and then, yeah, you just pull in the button component and it has all that stuff automatically set up for you. Yeah, exactly. And it's nice because it also lets you, there's like a layer of indirection there. Whereas you would normally just put these classes on your div, as I mentioned before, in, in a view component system, or design system, instead of saying like, I want the background to be blue. So maybe you're using Tailwind or something and you have like BG blue or something. I've I've never used Tailwind. Don't, don't at me if that's wrong. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But uh, you can specify that kind of thing and you can say rounded and stuff like that. The view component sort of wraps that all into like it adds these classes for you. And then you can just say color blue or background blue or whatever as keyword arguments. So that, or you can say size, large, size, small, whatever. So that you're sort of, at lifting up the, the abstraction layer means that then you can specify these much more semantic names for these properties. And then those can get turned into class names that the browser will understand. So at the end of the day, you're still writing HTML, you're still putting classes on, but it's like a much more abstracted way of doing that that just is easier to read, makes more sense to the, I think, to the, to any developer coming to your site, your, your code base the next time you onboard somebody. So yeah, that's, that's view component. So. Are there any sort of any other opinions or questions about view component before we sort of oh, man. talk Did about what Rux say is? Opinions? Did someone say <laughs> opinions? Oh, Luke, I've never heard you render an opinion on this show before. So right, <laughs> he, he he only renders partial opinions. Oh, there you I go. I like that rendering an opinion. <laughs> but yeah, I'd, listen, my opinion is is definitely out of scope. The and uh, probably global, but no. I mean, I think everyone now has seen JSX. JSX has kind of taken over the world, isn't it? So what really interests me is the J- making view components more JSX-y because my understanding of the view component is GitHub's blown up. Like GitHub is one of the kind of sleeping tech titans, isn't it? Kind of stomping across the coding landscape. I think it's, it's uh, it, people don't realize how big GitHub is going to be. But that aside, this idea of cleaning up your views. So you've got an even more complicated app. You need to kind of, you've got a much bigger team. You need to kind of get control, get control of this sprawling front end mess. You're fine. We're going to have a class per component. We're going to use a conventional object oriented structure to kind of sort things out so people don't start ramming their code into each other. But my understanding is that we're going a step further here and we're actually taking JSX, which is kind of separate in my book, to view component. I, I, would you agree to that, that kind of JSX is kind of separate to the idea of a view component, or do you think it's the same thing? Uh, no, it's definitely separate, which is why I really wanted to define what view components were before talking about Rux. In the JavaScript world, they're also separate, though. So like a component in React mm-hmm. doesn't actually need JSX to work, right? It's The JSX is, or JSX is just like a, a sort of a nice syntax that lets you write components more easily. But in React, if you wanted to say, you know, create React element and all that other stuff, you could absolutely do that. You'd have to do it a bunch of times and it would be really hard to read. But you can absolutely do that in your in your render function. So the idea of a React component is separate from JSX. JSX is almost like a language and React components are like a, 
an, an object or a, a, a structure that's been defined by this by this React library that you can use. You don't have to use React components with JSX, though. So yeah, that, that's true. They're definitely separate ideas. I will say, though, that I think that the reason that like JavaScript, well, specifically React, I think the reason that React took off so, so fast, there's a bunch of reasons for that. But one of the big reasons is because JSX made it so much easier to understand what was going on. So as opposed to creating all these nodes, these DOM nodes and things, you could simply write what looked like HTML, and that would be what would appear on the page. It was a very one-to-one mapping between this is the code that I'm writing, and this is what appears on the page. And I'm sticking this variable in here, and I'm writing this loop here, and it's generating this other like uh, looped or aggregating this this list of, of objects in this loop, and then printing those out to the page. So to me, that I, I think that if, if JSX had not existed and wasn't something that you could use with React, nobody would have used React. I think it would have been really difficult to use React without it. I don't think that there is the same sort of barrier with view components. I think you can absolutely use them without sort of any barriers uh, in ERB or Slim or Haml or whatever else. But I do think that React sort of gave us this cool idea of like, wouldn't it be nice if we could just write what looks like HTML? I think that makes the, the link between your code and what appears on the page a lot more obvious. In ERB, obviously, you know, you can put tags and whatnot, but you know, Ruby just treats those as strings. There's no checking to make sure they're closed correctly or formatted correctly. They're just strings. So one of the benefits of Rux is that it will, you know, it generates a string as, as well, but there's a, a parsing component to this that makes sure that you've got the correct formatting and whatnot in there. And then also makes it so that you can write your your HTML code directly in your, your Ruby code. So I mentioned that view components, there has to be two things. There's a, a Ruby file that's a class that inherits from view component base, and there's a template. There's another way that you can render stuff from a view component, though, and that is by defining a call method. And that call method can return, it has to return a string. It's really whatever you want to put in there. You know, you could put in a string, of course, you could put in a Ruby object called 2s or whatever on there, and that gets stuck into the template. Or that, that is the template. That's the result, and that gets put on the page. So it's it's used that in place of the template file. And what I think, which which reminds me a lot of the render function in, in uh, React components. So what I've done is, what Rux does is it, it takes that view component file, and it looks for these HTML tags, and then turns those into Ruby code. So there's a transpilation step, just like there is for JSX, where it takes the that identifies those HTML tags. It, lo- it notices where you're trying to interpolate, you know, with the curly braces like you would do in React. Notices where those are. Those get emitted as as just straight up Ruby code. And then the whole thing is is just this. It turns into this big chunk of Ruby code, which emits a string, and that's what gets returned from the call function. So it's it's very similar to React in that way, and and lets you stick those those HTML tags directly in your Ruby code. Cameron, I have I have a many questions here. But I'll try and stick to one topic at a time. <laughs> I, I'm I'm coming from a way back when a, a design heavy job where, and I've kind of seen this transition in in the Ruby Rails world, right? Where the front end is completely separate from the back end, and that's kind of honestly the state that we're seeing Rails now with the the new releases from DHH coming out, right? where we're trying to figure out a more cohesive system for everybody to work in. And especially as, you know, GitHub is definitely one of these big contenders where they're heavily invested in Ruby and Rails and also design systems, uh, which have taken off. You know, now they've seemed to have a good system in place, at least for them, where it's working, where the design team can go in and you know, the developers can support them in maintaining it. And everybody has kind of found a happy medium 
but it still seemed like there's a rocky road <laughs> and, it, and there and it does seem like there are a lot of different paths that you can currently take and i'd like to just outline them so we can kind of hone in on what problems view components and rux is solving uh in the landscape right because we have other trans transpilers that have been around a while like opal for example or mate stack is not a transpiler but it does solve a similar problem in creating some of these ruby focused design components and i think there's there's several other kind of similar libraries what, what does what does ruxt and view components kind of focus on that are different in, than what is out there or what has been out there yeah that's a super good question so view components are only server side so so nobody is saying that you should use view components if if you're a if you're a react shop or you're a, a javascript heavy front end shop there's really I don't think much reason, and you and you like TypeScript, you like React, maybe, or even just JavaScript. You know, then then keep doing that. You know, view components not going to replace that. View components only for the server side, and for Ruby. I think that the main motivation behind view component was to make to, to solve a lot of the problems that I mentioned, where you have access to the instance variables in the entire call stack of views that you're rendering, which just seems like a, a sort of a dirty thing, but can also lead to some actual confusion and some actual problems. In terms of these other projects you mentioned, so Opal, and I, I forget the other one that you mentioned. I hadn't heard of it before. Uh, MateStack. Yeah, I'm not familiar with MateStack. Actually, is that uh, a run like a JavaScript runtime? Yeah, it's uh, it's essentially it, it runs Vue.js behind the scenes, and then it front loads. It does some transpilation as well to convert some uh, Ruby defined view view components kind of into view, literal view components, Vue.js components. Oh, wow. So it's it's taking... Okay, so it's taking view components from Ruby and transpiling them into... It's going the, the other way. components. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy, that's super interesting. I'll have to look into that. <laughs> We're going to have to do an episode on that one because that one sounds like my brain just broke trying to... <laughs> it's really... I, know. I think <laughs> at uh, the last RailsConf, he gave... Uh, a, the author of that gave a talk. I'm, I don't know, fortunately, his name is escaping me at the moment, but I'll find that. Yeah, so that, yeah, that's definitely. super interesting. I mean, so one thing I will say is that like Rux and view components, the transpilation step that Rux or the, the transpilation that Rux does is different from Opal. And I would imagine MateStack also because there's, I mean, Rux is literally only a transpiler. There's no runtime at all. So it, it's not providing this execution context or anything like Opal will be doing. You know, it's not re-implementing the Ruby standard library in, in JavaScript, nothing like that. It's, it's just taking these strings that, that appear in your Ruby code and turning them into Ruby code. So that's, it's, so that they can run in Ruby. So again, totally server side, nothing to do with the front end except for it's, a, it's, it's part of the view layer, but no, nothing to do with JavaScript. And, you know, Chuck had mentioned that he is using stimulus controllers with components. That's really interesting and, and probably how I would attach JavaScript behavior to components right now if I were to do that. But yeah, most of it is just like, so github.com is a bunch of different partials and it's, you know, it's kind of, there's a lot going on in that code base and view component was initially created to sort of tame that complexity. 
in, in the case of GitHub, because there's already so many partials and views and because it uses Rails heavily, there's not much, I would say, incentive or, or maybe it's, it would be a lot of work for GitHub to convert everything to React, for example. So as a, instead of rewriting everything in React, the idea is, well, can we, can we get some of the benefits of components, but, you know, have them rendered server side like we're already doing with our views? So yeah, I hope that answers your questions. I think, yeah, I feel like you had one more question in there that I haven't gotten to yet. Yeah. So. You answered them all, I think. I was definitely interested in how Rux fits into the ecosystem, especially around the transpilation process at what phase. Like, is that happening in real time? Are are those cached and you're just rendering the, you know, uh, is are they hydrated like server-side rendering? How does that work? Right. So, yeah, the transpilation stuff, I think we could spend a lot of time talking about that because what we're really talking about here is adding transpilation to Ruby. And I think there's probably a lot of people out there who are like, oh my God, no, I hate this in JavaScript. There's this build step that I have to go through. And we just, in the pre-show, talked about Webpack and Webpacker and, and just how painful it is sometimes to configure that. And you know, it's sort of necessary, or it has been historically necessary to do that because you wanted to be able to leverage things like JSX and Babel and all this other stuff, right? In, and so the question is like, do we really want to bring like that level of complexity to Ruby? And I myself am not completely convinced that that's what we want, but I also, you know, think that it'd be really nice to be able to write these view components in a, in a language that doesn't have all these less than percent sign equals around them, like ERB is, or like ERB has. So to answer your question though, the transpilation step happens when the file gets required in development. So there's a, there's a monkey patch into Zeitwork and into a kernel that whenever the file gets required, if it has a Rux extension, .rux extension, then that will be transpiled into a Ruby file. And the thing that actually gets required is the Ruby file. So now that's not something you really want happening in production though, because, you know, who knows? <laughs> I mean, this Rux is only one person and I've only put it into one little toy app so far. <laughs> so who knows? It might take your side down. So don't, you know, don't do that. In, that's disabled in, in production. In production, instead, there's a rake task you can run that just transpiles all your templates into Ruby and then gets and it just doesn't put any of the monkey patches in. So you essentially just have Ruby files like you would normally have. If you want to play with the transpiler, how do you kind of check it out and see what it's doing? Yeah, for sure. So one thing you can do is look at the files that it writes. There's a the, just right next to your, if you have a, a file called mycomponent.rux and you run your rake task, it'll spit out a file called mycomponent.rb and you can look at exactly what it's done there and all that it should have done all the other code that you've got in that file should be the same as it is in, in the Rux file, except for the parts that have the HTML tags in them. When you say this gets generated on the fly when you run it, or do you actually have to run the transpiler? It gets so in development, it'll happen whenever you require the file. So like, or whenever Rails auto loads it. Okay. So you know, if I go to a page and my component is rendered on that page, like you know, my component is a is a is a component. If that gets rendered on the page, then the file will get loaded by Rails and the Monkey patches will say, oh, I've, I've seen a file with an RUX extension. I'm going to invoke the transpiler on that source code, emit the RB file. And then instead of requiring that Rux file, I'm going to sort of do a bait and switch and require that RB file instead. I gotcha. So I guess the other question that I have then is, let's say that I put this into practice. I put it into my code. Do I want to be checking in the, the RB file or do I want to be checking in the Rux file? Yeah, or super both? good question. So I don't have a great answer to this because... I think like you don't you don't really want to be like excluding RB files from your check-ins because I'm sure there's lots of other RB files right. like in your models and things that you don't want to exclude. But yeah, that's generally how you, I would say don't check those in because they are generated. So just like you wouldn't necessarily check in like your compiled assets 
you wouldn't necessarily mm-hmm. check in your transpiled Rux code. Yeah. I would, I would think you wouldn't want to ge- put a, you would not want to check in those intermediate generated objects. Yeah. Yep. I, I it's really interesting. I, I'm, this is good stuff. I'm really interested in the design decisions behind and especially the transpiler. So just to give some background, like, you know, you mentioned you want the code to represent, to best represent the concerns. So to- totally agree. So you could argue that ERB kind of already does that, right? Because it is essentially, its base is HTML. Now you didn't mention there's some kind of ugly syntax to reference your data. So you can probably improve that. And, and I, I like you gave a, a very good outline of some of the issues with view components. So now we need to solve these other concerns, right? How do we reuse this and the validation of the HTML? I'd love that feature. So now we create a Ruby component. Yeah, we have a view. So that encapsulates some of this. We can test it. We can reuse it. But now, now we've created another problem, right? Because now our code is a little bit further away from our real world concern, which is the HTML. So, okay, well, now, now you take the next step. And I think that's where Rux goes. So now you have, again, a native HTML construct. We transpile that to Ruby so that our Ruby code can render HTML. So, <laughs> and I understand that it all works pretty nicely, like you just outlined. So I'm just th- thinking all of this through out loud, I guess. So when you looked at doing this, I'm, I'm really curious about the design. So I guess one of the problems that Rux is solving is at the core, how do I package up? There's no good packaging mechanism for the ERB, right? And so I think that's why we ended up, it all ended up going down this path. But I'm curious, like, what was some of the thought process there? And how did you reason through these issues and kind of end up where you're at? Yeah, good question. So first of all, I was muted, but I was totally laughing when you said it was like going from Ruby back to, or I guess ERB to Ruby and then back to Rux and then back to Ruby. Yeah, no, totally. (laughs) There's a lot, and this is exactly, I think, what the problems that a lot of people have with JSX or, or really with JavaScript transformations, because you know you don't know what's going on behind the scenes and what it spits out at the end is un- sometimes totally unintelligible. And it's like, why did I have to go through this process that you know takes all these CPU cycles and really just gives me the same thing I had in, in the beginning? So I think that there's like the reason that I created Rux is because honestly, it was the simplest thing. I just was like, this should be in Ruby. You know, that's all I was thinking. Like I I enjoy writing React components at my previous job at Quip, which is owned by Salesforce. There's a, a big TypeScript React front end and the experience of writing view, com- I keep saying view components, the, the experience of writing JSX or, or TSX in that case in that code base was really nice. And it was, it felt very ergonomic. It felt very natural. And when I would go render view components in my Rails code, my Rails projects, it didn't feel nearly as ergonomic. It didn't feel nearly as easy. It didn't feel nearly as, I don't know, it didn't flow as well, I guess, is the best way I can describe it. And so I thought, you know, wouldn't it be cool if I didn't have to write all, like, you know, typing for me, typing left parent or left bracket, you know, left angle bracket percent equals is it just, I always mess it up. Every time I try to type it, I always mess it up. And so I have so to like, VS code. And go back. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. It, it can't figure out the per, the percents, at least in any of the plugins I've used. Oh boy. Yeah. So that's the thing. It it just wasn't. I just had such a hard time typing it. And so what I thought was, oh my gosh, like JSX, like for Ruby, that seems like a great idea. Let's just do that, you know. So, and I, I have to say, it is a lot. I do find it easier to write. It's a little, little bit more ergonomic, etc. But maybe to some of your other 
points about about ERB. Like, it's not like ERB is bad, but, but as I mentioned before, like ERB, because I think you had said that like your you know ERB's base is HTML, and I want to correct that because ERB's base is not HTML. ERB's base is just a string, so you you're, you stick these you know, echo statements essentially into a string. That string might be HTML, but it doesn't have to be. It could be YAML, it could be anything else. So in fact, you can actually put ERB tags in your database.yaml, which is something that I've seen people do if you want to inject like an environment variable into your database.yaml. You can do that with HTML with ERB tags because that YAML file is is put through the ERB interpreter whenever it's loaded. So, so it's you. What you're really getting is just a, a, a giant string at the end. And what ERB will do is it'll see the strings and it'll just put them straight up verbatim into the output. So it doesn't check them for validity. It doesn't check to see if like your HTML is formatted correctly or if you're closing all your tags, etc. So, so yeah, I just wanted to say that also. So, so Rux also will do that. One thing that I I think is nice about JSX and TSX is they do that same thing. Like I've seen them before in Rubyland in the view layer where you can have a partial that's rendered on top of another part. Let's say you render two partials in a row and the first partial like opens a div and the next partial closes it. And to me, I'm just like looking at that. <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah, it's like, that's not validation. So if you want to render that one partial somewhere, then you'd have to also remember to render the other one or put a literal closing div tag or whatever in there. And you know, because they're just strings, ERB doesn't care. And in some ways that's really flexible and nice, but in other ways it just makes my like engineer brain like short circuit. I'm like, ah, don't do that. You know, it's just not good. Isn't that the definition of the word partial? It's just a partial div. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. It's just partial, <laughs> a partial string. And it partially drives me nuts. <laughs> so, yeah, that I hear you. That validation aspect, and I'm assuming the roughs or the view would not let you do that. But yeah, I guess I was re- referencing it as HTML just because that's how my little brain thinks of it. Because I'm putting HTML content in there, um, right? But yeah, no, no that that, that validation thing. is a huge benefit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think I, I totally understand what you're saying because that's how I, I think about it too most of the time. But it's just that it's just that that, that HTML is is only one thing you can do with it. I guess is what I was saying. So like you know it's. And ERB by itself probably shouldn't be checking for tag closures and things. It's like not what it's designed to do. Well, that depends. It depends on what kind of experience you want to have writing it. I mean, because you can use something like Hamel, right? Which just uses mm-hmm. indentation and you're kind of forced into the indentation or the closing tags because it auto closes the tags. Yeah, exactly. So you put that into a partial, it's just going to do it. So mm-hmm. I, I think it really depends on the experience. Right. I'm just saying ERB itself doesn't do that. But yeah, Hamel, Slim, all the other stuff out there is very similar to Rocks in that sense. Like you'd have to, like you don't actually write the closing tags in Hamel, but it puts them in for you. Yeah. Now I want to write Hamlux or something. <laughs> I, I'm just kidding. So I do have a few things that I want to throw in here from my experience writing React, my experience writing Rails, my experience dealing with JSX, I'll tell you some of the JSX stuff that I've done, like JSX, it was like, this thing's a freaking nightmare, right? And usually what it what it boiled down to was just mostly had to do with how things were structured and how it looked up other components to bring in and stuff like that. And I've got I've got 90 requires at the top of the file because I need them all further down the chain. And, and so that was my primary issue with with Rux or with uh, JSX, sorry, and Ruby's autoloader and the way that this just kind of patches into that makes a lot of that go away. So that that is one major thing that you have solved. I have a couple of other things though that I wanted to bring up because I'm curious. One is, is a lot of the JSX that I've seen out there, and we kind of discussed it a little bit with view components, was the JSX includes the CSS as well. So yeah, 
you're talking about like styled components and and that mm-hmm. sort of style of yes for sure yeah you know so it's rux has not and i haven't really gone through the process of thinking how that would look right now there's no css in, in ruby but i could totally right. see that being a thing at some point it, it's oh, hard because I, I really no 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 <laughs> let's let's don't do that css and js is a disaster wherever it lives Yes, I know. I was going to, for sure. I was just about to say that like style components, I really don't like that interface. It just looks so weird to me. And it's also, I don't know, the triple back ticks. It's so weird. Anyway, so I would really not. <laughs> it's not just that. me. No, <laughs> no, definitely not. <laughs> no, definitely not. But, and you know, SAS, SAS is like a really powerful CSS, mm-hmm. like transpiler already. So like, if you wanted to use something like SAS, you know, and you wanted to stick that in your, your Ruby, like, I don't know how that would work. And, and like, I don't know. What I was thinking is in Ruby, you know, let's say you had some CSS, you could potentially do some cool things like inherit from another CSS object. And, but I don't know Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. You know, there's lots of cool ideas there, but you'd really have to prove it out before it would make sense, I think. Yeah. One other thing that I've seen with JSX and honestly, Rux is going to have some of the same issues. Any other system like this is going to have the same issues. And that is that you wind up packing a whole bunch of stuff in there, right? So if you have a really long template, you know, with a lot of tags in it, you're going to wind up with a really big call method in there, right? Now, there are some practices you can do to make that not as ugly, but I've seen 200-line JSX files because they have this massive overhead of HTML and then all of the supporting functions, which I'm assuming you can add methods to your Rux components and, and call them in the same way you're doing with your instance variables you have another 100 200 lines of that. And so, yeah, how do you how do you avoid that with Rux other than just being disciplined and breaking stuff up? Yeah, super good question. I'm I'm glad you mentioned that because just going back to what I said about view components before where you can either have a call method which is, you know, in lots of the examples in the readme for example in Rux, I have examples of like sticking your Rux just straight in the call method there. But the other method is there's a template and that template is sort of implicit, like you don't specify a call method, you just have a template for your component. And so Rux also supports that. There's a Rails template handler that will process files that end in a Rux T extension, so like Rux template. So you can stick your Rux code in a template file instead and then stick that in your components directory and that becomes the template. And then you just wouldn't render, you wouldn't have a call method. So in other words, you can just have your, your Rux code in, you know, not in the call method, it's not separate template. And so for something really, really big, you know, you, yeah, you would want to probably stick that into a template file. Right. And then, yeah, any extra functionality, like any convenience methods or things like that, for these components, you would just create methods on the component class, correct? Yes, exactly. That's right. One thing I do want to point out that I really did like, you know, looking at this was that if you're going to compose a component of other components, the render something something component dot new, pass in all the parameters, that that does feel clunky. First time mm-hmm. I saw it, I was like, this is better than calling render partial. But yeah. all the other benefits were so great that I, I quit complaining after like two days because I was <laughs> like, this is so nice. And by the way, if you're if you're relying on the assigned variables, the instance variables from your controller in your view components, you are definitely heading for pain. I'm just going to throw that out there. So... In fact, I have been known to call render and actually just pass in locals from the controller, like render with locals and only use the locals. So I really like it for that. But looking at this with the composition API that you've got here, where you can just call your 
you have your example, it's a name component, right? And then you pass it the first name and last name attributes. Uh, I mean, that that was slick. That was really nice because you look at it and it's it's very clear what it is. And it doesn't have that messy render something, something component new parameter one, parameter two, parameter three. It's just, hey, it, it looks like just a, a component insertion like you see in other systems. Right. Like you would see in JSX. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so just to expand a little bit on what Chuck's saying for because I know it's people can't see the you know the documentation. Rendering another component, you know, that component's just the name of a class. And so just like in JSX or or, um, or TSX, you would just say, you know, left angle bracket, like you're starting an HTML tag, and then the name of that component, so like name component, and then specify the attributes that are normally passed into the new, so the, the initializer there. You pass those in as if they're HTML attributes, and then you just close the tag. And then whatever is in the tag's body, so whatever is between the opening and closing tags, that gets rendered as the content of the view component. So, you know, whatever the, you could have anything in there like other HTML tags or other components, and those get rendered inside the the tags there. Yep. Are you under increasing pressure to ship code faster than ever before? Then it's time to work smarter with Raygun's modern approach to error and performance monitoring. Raygun gives you instant visibility into the health of your software. And what makes it so unique is that it not only tells you when something's gone wrong, it shows you exactly where it's gone wrong and how to fix it, right down to the line of code. Made by developers for developers, Raygun has built a suite of monitoring tools that are used and loved by thousands of software teams every day. Monitor every corner of your tech stack with widespread language support and native integrations with GitHub, Jira, Slack, Bitbucket, Octopus Deploy, and more for even greater visibility. Visit Raygun.com to resolve issues faster and deliver flawless digital experiences for your users. That's Raygun.com to get started on your free 14-day trial with plans starting from as little as $4 per month. By the way, one other thing that I saw in here that I thought was interesting. So having done what I've done with view components, I always use keyword arguments with them. And I found that that's, that just makes things so much cleaner and nicer when I write view components. Other people may have other experiences. If you have, I would like to hear about them. But yeah, I thought that was interesting that they only work with keyword arguments. And in my experience, view components, I've actually had problems with some of the view components I've written without keywords. And I just figured out the keywords made it easier. Yeah, that's a really good intuition. I think you're totally right. Like it makes it a lot easier to use them that way. I think keyword arguments in Ruby are generally a good idea almost everywhere. It just makes naming those parameters just a lot more straightforward, a lot more, um, I would say, obvious. In, yeah, in Rux, I think, as you mentioned, like Rux requires you to pass keyword arguments because of that mapping to HTML. Like in HTML, there's no such thing as a positional argument, really. So you'd have to, in Rux, you have to pass them as keyword arguments. It's funny because when Ruby first implemented keyword arguments, I was like, really? Really? But as I've used them over the over the last years, I have to say that it's really nice when it says, you didn't specify, because most of the view components I'm doing, you know, is like a form tag or something, right? Or something in a form. You didn't specify the placeholder and it's required. And sometimes I'll go in and I'll give it a default value of nil or something. And sometimes I'll just leave it required and just make sure I'm putting it in everywhere. But I have to say that checking where it's like, hey, you didn't give me what I expected to get. That is really nice out of keyword arguments as well. Right, absolutely true. Yeah. And and also I'm sure that this group knows, but just to to say keyword arguments used to be just hashes under the hood. And then in mm-hmm. Ruby two point seven, I think they changed them to be like a native language feature. So now like when you pass keyword arguments, there's no extra object allocated. It's just literally arguments into your function that, that are natively supported now. 
They still are, man. Don't believe the hype. It's all hashes. Ruby's just one giant hash. <laughs> I've seen the code. I've seen the code. It's all hashes. It's just all the way down. Yeah, you know, you one thing I learned the other day is uh, Ruby's struct has a special option for a keyword in it so that you can actually initialize a struct with keyword arguments rather oh. than positional. It's I've been using it like crazy now. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> I did not know. Valentino drops the bomb. I know, right? So, getting back to to Rux here, well, one of the one of the incredible parts of it is transpilation, right? Like the ability to take your customized JSX DSL and make Ruby code out of it, right? And you mentioned before, kind of like how you want Ruby to kind of th- there's endless possibilities, kind of with this in mind. Like, what do you foresee in the future? of Ruby with, you know, this transpilation process and expanding on it. Oh, but man, that's I'm so glad you asked that. Cause I have so many cool ideas. Well, I don't know if they're cool. I think they're cool. Maybe other people won't think they're cool. <laughs> um, so yeah, like transpilation opens you up to so many interesting possibilities. Like once you've got sort of that foot in the door, then, then sort of sky's the limit. And that's again, kind of what JavaScript has done. And, and so there's so many different transformations that your code can go through that, you know, I, again, I'm, I'm just so hesitant to want to say, like, we should do this for everything. But that being said, there are some cool ideas. So one of the, well, I'll, I'll go through maybe sort of least exciting to most exciting in my mind, potentially the least exciting, but maybe the, maybe the one of the most important is source maps. So in JavaScript, when you've transpiled something the original source code could be pretty far away in terms of its character position from the transpiled code. And so, you know, the, the JavaScript community came up with this source maps concept, which maps the, the compiled, uh, the transpiled code back to its source, like where it came from. So what that means is that it enables, like when you're in your debugger, for example, on the console in your browser, you can step through CoffeeScript or TypeScript or whatever, as if it were natively supported in your browser, because the, the, the JavaScript execution engine in the browser is saying, okay, I know where you are in the JavaScript code that I'm running. And I know that because of the source map, I can map that back to the original source file, TypeScript or whatever. And so then I can step you through as if you're you know, actually running TypeScript. So that doesn't necessarily make a big difference in the Ruby world, except for when you're trying to talk about stack traces. So if something goes wrong in your Rux, transpiled Rux code, or your, you know, your Ruby code that was transpiled from Rux, and you get a stack trace back. What you're going to get is a stack trace that points to that original Ruby file. And that may not make any sense to you because you're like, I've never seen this file before. This is auto-generated. And I don't really want to have to go through and look at this, like, <laughs> I'll be totally honest, a little bit messy. You know, and if you've ever looked at ERB, transpiled ERB, it's the same thing. Like it doesn't make a lot of intuitive sense because it's just gluing a bunch of strings together. And it tries to do that in like the most efficient way it can. And because it's assuming that no humans are going to look at it, it can it can make all sorts of like heinous decisions. And the same thing is true of Rux in, in a sense. And so, you know, you don't really want to look at that Rux file. You want to map it back to, or sorry, the, the Ruby file. You want to look at the Rux file. And what I would love to do at some point is to have a source map that will say like, it'll, it'll you know, intercept a stack trace and say, okay, this is the source line in Ruby. The Ruby this is where the original like a section occurred. I want to map that back to the Rux file and then just change out the lines that are in that stack trace to point to the Rux file. That turns out to be really hard because in Ruby, all you get is the line number. You don't get the position like the the, car- or the, the column position on the line. There is a proposal for Ruby 3.1 to add that in there. So I'm really hoping that when we get that in, it'll be a lot easier to, to make source maps. Okay, so that's the first... I think kind of interesting idea, maybe not the most exciting. 
The second one is adding import statements. And now I know you're thinking like, oh my God, why is this guy talking about Python or even JavaScript? So a lot of the problems <laughs> that I think... <laughs> I think a lot of the problems that I'm come sorry, up. but <laughs> so it, yeah, that's where my brain went. Sorry. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. Well, yeah, if you've ever seen, you know, like a TypeScript or JavaScript file, because it's import statements at the top where it's bringing in other stuff from other files. So in in Python, it's the same thing. One thing that I I like about that style of programming, though, is that if you ever want to find out what your files dependencies are, you just scroll to the top and say, "Oh, look at that! It's bringing in all this other stuff." And I know at a glance, like what it depends on. So if I want to extract it out into a library or something, or if I want to share it with somebody else or whatever, I know that I will also have to like share this other chunk of stuff that I might be bringing in. In in Ruby, like everything is evaluated in the same VM, right? So there's no, like if you've loaded something, it's now available everywhere. So it's a totally different like model, but I still think it might be kind of cool to have import statements at the top that say my file, my class, my whatever, my Rux code depends on this other class being around, being available. And then I can also not only like at a glance, see what other classes and, and I guess mostly classes and constants and things that my class or that my Rux file depends on, but I can also alias those things. So I can say, because the transpilation step makes it so that I can say, if I say import base from view component, for example, then, and I can even alias that as, you know, import base as view component uh, from view component as view component base or as VC base or whatever. And then in my code, I can just inherit from VC base. And dynamically, it'll go and rewrite the code when it goes to the transpilation step so that it inherits from view component colon colon base. So it's like a way to alias your constants too. So anyway, that's that's I'm not sure how much value is there, but I think that's an interesting idea to explore. If you do that, don't allow import star. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I already totally. complained to you about imports in JavaScript, so... Yes, <laughs> I know. Well, and like I said, it, it is kind of a fraught. Because there's there's really a question about how much value is that actually giving you. You know, if it's if you're not actually importing things, you're just saying you're importing things, you know? So, so you know, I'm really curious to hear the community's feedback on that. But the, the last idea that I have, I think, is maybe the most exciting, and that is inline type definitions. Now, I know Luke is going to freak out about this. But I just want just let me finish and then you can and then you can say all the terrible reasons why this should we shouldn't do this. So I'm a big fan of sorbet. I'm a big fan of type type annotations in general. I'm a big fan of typing, but I also love Ruby and those things are clearly incompatible. But these new cool systems like sorbet and like RBS, which is like that, you know, Ruby core like type annotation format. I think that that's a really interesting idea, but I really don't like the fact that in Sorbet, the signatures you have to add are like, they're executable Ruby code and they live like above each function, above each method. And that means that you have to ship a gem with your production code that makes sure that like the SIG function that you're calling actually exists. If you don't have that, Ruby will just blow up and say, I don't know what SIG is. What are you talking about? And you can't extend. Anyway, the whole thing is that, and if I want to turn off type checking in production, I still have to ship a gem with my, my system that like doesn't do anything. That seems like really annoying. And then in RBS, that's a little bit better, but all of those type annotations are live in a different file. So my idea would be to basically adopt RBS syntax, but put it into your Ruby code directly. So their types are in line like they would be in TypeScript. And the transpiler will then notice those annotations, lift them out, and stick them into an RBI file for Sorbet or an RBS file for RBS. So you'd be able to essentially have have type annotations that compile away and generate the right type definition file, and then you can type check those. So anyway, those are the three big ideas. You invited me into this topic. 
You can yes. Python the in. <laughs> One of the things we're doing at work is a load of Python with, I don't know what it's called, the Python type checking add-on. And in that, it uses like a kind of arrow syntax during the function definition. And it's a kind of syntax fudge, essentially, at the language level, where they're like, you know what, we can get away with putting hat arrows into the function definition. And if you want to use it, great. If you don't, forget about it. But I like the syntax of that. I find that, I don't know if you know these syntax I'm talking about in Python, but I find that very appealing. And I don't like spreading across files, you know, a kind of, you have to kind of bounce between files. I know everyone's got like a kind of 40 inch 8K monitor now with like a million VS code tabs. But I find that context switching very difficult. If I, I kind of want to think about a function, I want it all there in a row. So uh, yeah, I, I think the, uh, the RPS doesn't follow that paradigm, so I don't like it. Yeah, I think you're talking about MyPy in Python, which is the like static type checking with annotations and things. Yeah, boy, I really thought you were going to say that typing is just a bad idea in general. Man, I've, listen, I've, I've said it so many times. I've said it so many times. I'm, uh, I'm a voice <laughs> crying in the wilderness. Well, it's so far it hasn't been required. So I've been doing loads of C this week. And like bouncing uh, FFIs, so I, I feel hypocritical if I if I came out against types at the moment. <laughs> understood, understood. Yeah, I'm good. I am going to talk about some other things. So since since we're here, uh, first is the number one question about Rux, uh, which I think for everyone on the panel is thinking about is: Does this let me write less JavaScript? <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, <laughs> we've we're we're going there. No, it doesn't. Unfortunately, because again, it has nothing to do. Unfortunately, maybe it has nothing to do with JavaScript. It's it's really just the the Ruby side of things, you know. It just adds nice stuff onto your view components. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, at some point, well, in fact, in fact, it might actually encourage you to write more JavaScript because now you've got a. I mean, if you're not using React. You've got to attach a, a stimulus controller to your component instead or something like that. So if you want some interactivity with your components, you need, you've got to go about it in a, in a, in a non-Ruxy, non-Ruby way. But yeah. I've, got a couple of, I've got a couple of gritty things to talk about. The first is the string interpolation in Rux uses the React pattern with the curly, you put a curly bracket in or curly brace and then you're into Ruby land, presumably. And anything in there, can anything in there be a, a Ruby about or is it just variables it can be anything that can be turned into a string basically which in ruby is almost everything so if you for for example and it also handles arrays natively so for example if you pass if you return like you map over something and in that map you are rendering another component for example or returning a set of strings rux will take that string and join it together those that array of strings rather and join it together and that's because of map and all that other things like that kind of stuff in ruby land that returns an array for anything else though it'll just call 2s on it so uh the other important so is it going to call 2s on it or is it just going to have a local came out mm, i'd have to go back and look specifically at the code but I, th- I think it calls 2s on it and my second question is you know, doesn't it feel wrong doing string interpolation without the magic hashtag that makes string interpolation work <laughs> oh boy that's a good question or i mean pound sign as you americans incorrectly call it. <laughs> the octothorpe yeah i interesting question i think i mean there's two reasons for that 
I mean, one is that having the same because it's what you're writing is not really Ruby. It's it's Rux, you know, or it's it's JSX inspired Rux, I guess, or JSX inspired code. So having having a pound open curly is you know interesting, but I think it might get confusing. Like, is this an actual string or is this Rux code? What is this? And then and then the other thing I just hinted at is like I was trying to follow the same like JavaScript like JSX pattern there. The other technical <laughs> thing I was asked about was I don't know if you're familiar with the Yo Dog meme. This is a meme based on a TV show called Pimp My Ride. Now, for those uh, of you too young, probably under the age, about 30, 32, 33, who don't know what that is, a TV was like a giant tablet with no battery that was too heavy to carry around. And it only played YouTube <laughs> and somebody else decided which videos it played and the ad blocker didn't work. And Pimp My Ride was kind of, uh, was a YouTube channel on this giant immovable tablet. And, uh, the reason I ask about that is because the meme is, you know, yo dog, I heard you like components. So I put a component in your component. And, uh, the idea of what some of you touch on is, uh, nested components, which is kind of one of the big features of JSX is you can invent your own, invent your own HTML tags. Basically, it looks like an HTML tag and you kind of invent your own tag and it hugely confuses junior developers because what they do is they go to the internet and they go, oh, I've never seen a, never seen a customer form HTML uh, tag. And they go on, they look for the HTML tag that's called customer form in camel case. And someone has to tell them that it's not a real HTML tag. It's JSX. When you're, when you're scoping the, uh, these tags when you're nesting tags in art in ruts is that just calling out for like uh presumably kind of big list of magic globals on classes or how does it how does it find the uh, how does it do the lookup for nested components yeah so by there so because it's, it's again just ruby code and there are blocks and stuff involved in the in the generated ruby code but it's, it's just doing regular constant lookup that that Ruby would normally do. So um and, and by the way, the way that it distinguishes between like what I would call sort of um native HTML tags like div and span and those kinds of things, like the Rux transpiler will look for lower like it treats anything lowercase as a native tag and it treats anything with an uppercase character because that's like a Ruby constant has to begin with an uppercase character. Anything that begins with an uppercase character it treats as a component that you're trying to render right right there at that point in the in the template uh, or in the Rux code. So that's the distinction there. I think is that I think that is, is that answer your question, or was there something else to it? I was just curious how you actually did the implementation. I don't know enough JavaScript to have ever delved into JSX, but I was clicking yeah. around the the Rux gem and I was kind of trying to work out how you're actually parsing these things and what you could pull in as a component. Right. Yeah. It's it's the nesting you're seeing there is actually just it's sort of. Hmm, how would I put this? It's sort of fake nesting, like from a Ruby perspective. Like, there's no actual change of context that you're going through there. Like, you're 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 going into a block for sure, because like when when you say render a component, usually you pass a block to it, and then that component has content within the block, and the block will, will print out or will return, I guess, and that gets injected into the HTML at that point. But in ter- otherwise, you know, it's it's really just building up a big string. And so any of the constants, like there's no actual Ruby context changing there. So any of the constants that you're referencing are part of that global Ruby constant namespace that, that everything else is in that you can just look up. Right. So you're not, you're not checking if it's subclassed off the view component or anything. No, actually, that's that's true. We're not checking for that at all. That might be a good idea, but but I don't know if that would even be possible, just because 
it's it's statically there's it's not happening at runtime it's happening at at uh at, at compile time essentially yeah exactly so one thing and i i'm going to confess a little bit of ignorance here um i've only used view components for html um but you mentioned hey erb we use it for other other formats right yaml or xml <laughs> xml anyway but <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't say it and not gag on it. You know, but, uh, it's, it's transported me back to one of the reasons I decided not to do a computer science degree was going into a university bookshop in a kind of 2000, 2001 and seeing this enormous book like the size of my hand with XML written on it and just thinking, hell no, I kind of do mathematics instead. Yeah, anyway, so I was wondering, A, do view po- components work on yaml or rss or things like that and then the other thing that uh, occurred to me was does rux work with xml and stuff like that super interesting question i i guess the, i don't i can't think of any reason they wouldn't like why they wouldn't be able to be used with other textual formats like that well I specifically view component ruck and rux could potentially also work that way but rux is definitely more tied to html than view components yeah. are because of that whole, like I mentioned before, like the whole validation part of it. And then at the end of the day, too, you know, you're, you're writing what looks like HTML. So like action view and view component and ERB, all of those technologies really are sort of format agnostic. They're just spitting out a giant string. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but Rux is a, mu- a much more sort of structured. And so, yes, Rux is definitely more of an, like it has to be used with HTML. Do you have any thoughts on testing your Rux components? Because you don't actually have the RB file anymore. Or the ERB file, but I yeah, guess you're still true. just looking at the output and saying, "Did I get what I expected?" Yeah, I think so. You, if you're using Rux with view components, which I assume most people will be doing, because that's what they're designed to be used mm-hmm. with, you can use the same testing techniques that you would use to render or to test a, a regular view right. component. So, so yeah, and so like uh, the way that you would do that is just you know because it's just a Ruby class in your test, you can just literally say you know my component dot new, pass in some pass in some some parameters or whatever. And then I think we actually, we have this, uh, the view component library has this cool like render inline function that you can use in your test. I think it's actually, we have like a mini test helper. You can stick that in your test and then it will render that component for you and give you the, the text back out. And you can just assert that it, there's also a couple of really cool like assertion, like, like you can say assert has, or what is it? I think it's assert matches selector and assert matches mm-hmm. tags and stuff. So you can assert that like the right CSS classes and tags and stuff got, got stuck in your HTML that was res- the, the output of HTML. Makes sense. Yeah. So it turned out to be really like, I would say pretty, pretty straightforward. And that's one of the things I mentioned at the top of the show where like testing is a lot easier with your components because you're not having to like go through a controller to render them. You can literally, or, or any of the Rails stack, you can just literally say like, make this component and then render it and test the results. Mm-hmm. It's just a lot easier. Cool. Anything else we should talk about here before we go to picks? There's, I don't think there's anything else on my end. You guys hit on everything. I'm so glad that you talked about, the, especially like the new stuff that I wanted to add to it because I was afraid that we might not get to that. Yeah, I mean, I really, I'm really curious to see how transpilation sort of is 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 regarded in the Ruby community because of sort of the cautionary tale of JavaScript. And also just the fact that like there's this indirection that's, that it's introducing. So just to, to the listeners and also to the panelists, like if, if you have concerns about that slash you think it's a great idea, you think it's a bad idea, like please, you know, hit me up. I, I'd love to chat about it. I think it's a really interesting concept. Yeah. I am kind of curious now that you mentioned that, you know, where you know, getting feedback. My initial thought was, that's cool. Why would you ever do this? 
So <laughs> have you gotten feedback like that? Has it generally been positive or negative or this is a great idea or a terrible idea or, you know, people try it and then they like it or yeah. Yeah. I, it's funny because I really, I thought, and this just goes to show that I have no idea what people will like. The view component is a really popular project. There's lots of contrib- contributions happening every day on it. And so I think, and if I were to say, if I were to sort of pick the transformational technology of this whole thing, it would not be Rux. It would definitely be view component. Like it, right. it is a, a very, very, I think, important step that the Rails view layer takes. It, it still sort of remains to be seen whether or not that gets adopted by big companies and, and sort of gains that traction that way. But I know that view component specifically has a lot of traction in small companies and side projects and maybe even some big companies. And I know that GitHub is like, we are currently transitioning to use all view components in our, in our view layer with the primer design system. But in terms of feedback for rocks, I really have not gotten any feedback. I mean, there's a couple of people on Twitter who have said, like, for example, Jared White, who um, works on Bridgetown, which is a static mm-hmm. site generator for Ruby based on Jekyll. Uh, that's a really cool project, by the way. If you haven't had it him is on, very I would, cool. yeah, I would, I would love to hear what he has to say about that on this show. But he added Rux support. I, I never heard sort of what the result of that was, but he was he was talking with me about it. And then I, I talked to somebody else on Twitter about it. But other than that, there hasn't really been much of a of, an, of a, a reaction to it, which I, I was a little surprised about because it seems to me like if view components are popular, then Rux would be something people would want to try at least. And, and maybe they are and they just haven't told me. But for the most part, I, you know, I, I don't think it's been that big. A, it doesn't make that big a splash, you know? So maybe that's just mm-hmm. indicating to me that it's not something the community wants. But I do think that transpilation still could be something valuable. So, right. yeah. Cool. All right. Well, I'm going to push us to picks. Hey, folks, it's Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to jump on real quick and let you know that I am putting together a podcasting course. I get asked all the time. I've been coaching people for the last six months. How do you start a podcast? How do you put it together? What do I need in order to get it going, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Um, I've put together the curriculum, and I did it through coaching a whole bunch of people, and now I want to share it with you. You can go check out the course. It's actually going to be a masterclass. It's going to be a four-week masterclass where I actually walk you through the entire process of launching a terrific-sounding podcast and putting together content that people want to listen to. And you can find it at podcastbootcamp.io. Valentino, do you want to start us off? Sure. Let's see. Just going to bring this up here. So I've been making this analog terminal bell, thanks to Aaron Patterson for creating the schematics and the real one, the real life, the real one. And it turns <laughs> out that I'm terrible at soldering. And I had no idea that to solve it all is just using a ton of flux <laughs> and just smearing it over the board. And it just magically solders for you. So I definitely <laughs> want to plug flux. <laughs> You know, you know, the guys at work don't believe me that flux solves all problems. I don't know who's teaching electronics, but you you get it in, and you can get two kinds, can't you? You can get like the paste and the liquid stuff. Yeah, and the, yeah, flux. What a great! It's thing. incredible. I mean, I bought solder with flux in it and thought I was good enough. <laughs> But no, I would not recommend it. I I definitely ruined a board uh, trying to do that. It works if you've if you've got enough practice, you can solder with the solder with flux in it. But uh, I mean, I was I took electronics in high school, and then I was an electrical engineering major in college. But I mean, even then, still, we'd always put a little bit of flux on the pads before we solder on them. Makes a major difference. Yeah, and then my next pick, I just discovered 
strict loading mode for preventing lazy loading in Active Record. There's a uh, pull request I'll leave in the show notes uh, that describes why you might want to do this, but basically just makes it so that you can get notified if anything tries to load something lazily uh, down the road. Uh, So it's a good way to just even add a spec for it and then see what is loading things extra down the way. So you can load a view and then see, hey, let's throw strict loading on this in the controller level Mm -hmm. and see what else is, you know, getting access down the way and other views and partials that it loads. So I've been finding it pretty helpful. Nice. What do you got, Darren? Okay, I've got a couple of picks today. The first one is now we know in our community that Ruby is not only alive and thriving, but it's doing great. However, if you're out there on the interwebs, you will find people who question this, whether it's in your daily digest you get from Medium or whatever news source, or if you're wandering Reddit forums. Well, this question has finally been asked and answered. So my first pick is the website isrubydead.com, and it is formally answered there. Hint, hint, the answer is no, of course. But it's quite funny if you check if you check out that site and the fact that it exists. You ruined my Halloween pick. Thank you very much. Oh, I'm so sorry. So sorry. <laughs> I just stumbled upon this in a Reddit forum, someone asking the question. Okay, so the next one is, this came up on a discussion on a previous episode. We talked about applications and use cases for Ruby. And when you get to use cases in the data analysis realm, machine learning, sometimes Ruby was lacking. You might end up having to go to Python or or just getting discouraged. Well, there's an author of a bunch of fantastic gems, Andrew Kane. He is the author of Blazor, Ahoy, a number of gems that I've written about before and, and used. He's one of the more prolific authors, actually, that I found. So he set out to improve the machine learning ecosystem for Ruby. And he mentioned that over five months, the next five months from when he started that, he released over 16 libraries that have to do with data analysis and machine learning. Some of them wrappers to things, others pure Ruby. So he has a a great posting about new machine learning gems. There's also a follow-up. I think the first one has 15. He's got a follow-up post with another 16. So on on the subject of whether Ruby is alive and well, it very much is alive and in fact now I'm I'm hoping that we see a growing momentum around the use of Ruby in these other kind of uh, areas that are very exciting and have so many exciting use cases so those are my picks today check them out nice you know somebody should start a podcast about machine learning sounds like a good Luke? idea <laughs> Luke do you have some picks <laughs> we we have a podcast about machine learning sorry I was going to say that's just a trap uh, uh, it's Adventures uh, in Machine Learning if you're looking for it. Anyway, go ahead, Luke. Machine Learning, my word. I was in a bookshop for the first time in two years last weekend, and there were about as many books on machine learning in the comp sci department as there were on everything else combined. So, Were they as long as the XML bro- books? <laughs> they, they, were, they were considerably more attractive, but as I've got older, maybe my standards have lowered. I was going to say, oh, did maybe. you go back into the bookshop because you wanted to go find that XML book and, and buy it this time? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Oh, I hate XML so much. Uh, C data. <laughs> C data is the last thing that got me. I was reading in something that used oh, uh, C man. data. Whatever that is, uh, C data. And I had to kind of set a magic flag in the library. Otherwise, it just ignored everything in the C data tag. 
And of course, a lot of very critical customer information was in C data tags. And you can guess how that ended. Well, it stands for customer data. Comment data? I don't know, man. It could be anything. Yes. It could be it could be data from C. It's funny because I've I've written XML stuff to manage RSS feeds. Big shock. I've been podcasting forever. And uh, I was surprised because the Ruby libraries handle C data just fine. They I didn't even know it was in there until I kind of got in deep. And then I was like, oh, wow. Anyway, I was, uh, I can't remember what I was using, but uh, yeah, first pick. So I've been doing the Jeremy Evans book and I've been experimenting with Postgres triggers. The idea behind these is that you get a notification on a channel. So you have to have kind of have a, have a thread going in the background that subscribes to a channel. And when your table changes, the actual database itself pushes a notification to your back end. And I've been coupling that with Turbo, a hot wire stack. So the idea is that uh, that's what does the round robin. So that's uh, Turbo's pushing the update to the page. But what triggers a notification in the first place is actually a uh, database side trigger. And I've been using Jerry Evans SQL Gem to actually do that. I found that very tough to actually come up with a working solution, but really interesting results by uh, using database triggers, not something I've done before. Second pick is a DEFCON talk. DEFCON 29 talks are coming out, and there is an absolute banger of a talk called HTML 2.0, The SQL is Always Worse. And this uses something called an HTML desynchronization attack, something I've never heard of before. But the idea is that when you're making your HTML request or response, you just jumble up the headers and try to confuse the server. And the guy who did it managed to take the whole of Jira offline for a day because it totally, totally wrecked them. There's no kind of fancy buffer overflows going on. You're just jumbling your headers and your requests. Really fascinating talk. I never even imagined it was possible uh, to do something like that. But uh, yeah, really, really great stuff. And my final pick is The Wire because uh, one of the actors in The Wire, which was an HBO series back in, I'm going to say late 90s, early 2000s, The Wire. One of the actors just died, Michael K. Williams, uh, so I've been re-watching The Wire, which is a great series. That was sad. That show is generally regarded as one of the best television shows of all time. Nice. And now people know where to watch it because, Luke, earlier you explained to people what a TV was. (laughs) (laughs) That was what we call foreshadowing. (laughs) (laughs) It was that low-end tablet he was talking about, right? That's right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, I, I've never watched The Wire. I'll have to go see if I can find it. So I've got a couple of picks. I just want to quickly shout out about Podcast Bootcamp, podcastbootcamp.io. If you want to learn how to podcast, get something launched within four weeks, I'll help you do it. The other thing that I'm going to shout out about, and this is another project that I've got kind of running on the side, is JavaScript Picks. Eventually, I plan to put up a Ruby Picks, but JavaScript Picks, it's going to be, if you use like Ruby Toolbox or stuff like that, it's along those same lines, it's going to have a few different features, and it's also going to include any kind of media that you can go consume. So courses, books, podcasts, YouTube, conference talks, you name it, all that will be in there too. So if you're looking for a particular topic, you should be able to find comprehensive information about any of it. And yeah, I'm starting with JavaScript because that's our largest audience. And then I figure I can use the same engine for any of the rest of it. So anyway, um, I'm really digging that. And view components make some of this stuff just super easy. So just going to add that. As far as things I'm going to pick that are not stuff that I'm working on. So this weekend, 
I listened to a book on Audible, and it's a sequel to another book that I've picked on the show before, and I know other people have as well. If you've uh, read or listened to Ready Player One, I listened to Ready Player Two, which wasn't as good as Ready Player One, but I mean, it was a good book. So since I enjoyed it, I thought I'd shout it out. If you haven't listened to or read Ready Player One and only seen the movie, the book is different and much, much better. And the movie was good. The movie was a really good movie. So just to put that out there. And then I've been listening to another book called Masters of Doom. By, uh, the author is uh, David Kushner, I think is his name. And he kind of chronicles the story of the guys that built Doom, the video game that came out in the 90s. And it, it's been really, really interesting because I didn't realize that they had done some other games that I had played earlier leading up to Doom, like uh, Commander Keen or Wolfenstein 3D. I didn't realize that they were the same guys. So... Anyway, really, really fascinating just to kind of see how that all went. And, you know, they they had a pretty contentious breakup later on, the, the two Johns. But uh, anyway, I really enjoyed that. So I'm going to pick that as well. And then the last thing is, is I just want to let you all know that I have big plans for top-end devs. The sort of resource directory that I was talking about with JavaScript picks is just the beginning. So keep your eyes peeled. I'm probably going to wind up doing some remote conference slash summit things heading into the end of this year and the beginning of next year and stuff like that. So go check out topendevs.com and then just kind of keep tabs on what's going there. I'll try and announce it on the show, but I don't always remember to do that. So Cameron, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we've talked about it a bunch of times, but just one of my picks has to be view component and primer. Those are really cool systems. Check those out. If you uh, are looking for a design system, and looking for ways to make your views a little more manageable in Rails. I am also going to pick... <laughs> so the NFL season starts today, actually. I am going to pick the Seattle Seahawks because they're the best team and everybody should love them. I'm from Seattle. so. And then the last thing I'm going to pick is something that I will hopefully be released. I think will be released by the time this episode comes out. But I wrote a little gem that's a partner to, uh, to Rux called ERB to Rux. So it's an automatic like ERB to Rux converter. So you can just run it on your code and it should spit out a Rux file. Obviously, it's gonna it'll spit out a Rux T file, like a template file. It won't actually like create a class for you. Uh, you'll have to do that yourself. But it's supposed to be like a more automated way of of doing that. So you have to sort of you know do it by hand. So yeah, that's it for me. Cool. Oh, Cameron, if people want to uh, connect with you online, where do they find you? Yeah. So I am at Camertron pretty much everywhere on the internet. So GitHub.com slash Camertron. I'm on Twitter at Camertron. C A M E R T R O N. Awesome. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up here. Thanks again for coming. This was this was really, really interesting. Yeah, thanks, guys. I really enjoyed it. All right. Till next time, folks. Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.